What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's a quote from A.W. Tozer. It's how he opens up his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. And in that book, he goes on to explain that our view of God, what we believe about him, what we believe he's like deep down in the recesses of our being, that shapes the whole course of our lives. I praise God for the clarity he gave Tozer to write such a statement. That statement is true. Brothers and sisters, so brothers and sisters in Christ, friends of you who are here who are not in Christ, what you believe God is like in the deep recesses of your being, that's going to shape the whole course of your life. If you think God is good and lovely and wonderful, that's going to incline you toward him. If you think he's less than that, Or if you think he's to blame for all your problems, that's going to incline you away from him. But here's the deal. What we think about God is never formed in a vacuum. What we think about God is never formed in a vacuum. In other words, we don't form our thoughts about him disconnected from the circumstances in life. Our circumstances influence how we think about God. And so James, the ever practical pastor, he recognizes that. And the difficulties in our lives, he recognizes that those difficulties can set us up to think things about God that we should never think, which will in turn affect how we live. And so he wants to speak to us this morning and make sure that we are clear about just how good God is. Would you open up your Bibles to James chapter 1, verse 13? James chapter 1, verse 13. We're in our third sermon on the book of James. We've done an overview, then verses 1 through 12, and now we get to verse 13. It's almost towards the end of your Bible, James chapter 1. If you get to 1 Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, you've gone too far. It's right after Hebrews. James 1 verse 13 says this, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, brings forth sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits, of his creatures. Pray with me one more time. Oh God, you are brighter than the brightest light we can conceive of. You are brighter than the best thing we can imagine. 
Shape our minds this morning according to your word so that we might believe what is true about you and live our lives happily devoted to your service. We pray in the name of our great and mighty Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. James writes to believers experiencing trials. In the context of this letter, the Christians have been scattered from their homes in Jerusalem due to persecution, and they're all over the place, hither and thither and everywhere. Now, this is the specific trial that they're experiencing, but he has in mind here more than just this specific trial. So in verse 2, he says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. So the trials that we experience are included here. He writes to us. In the context of the doctor informing us of our child's genetic disorder, he writes to us. In the context of our strained marriage, he writes to us after we've been laid off. He writes to us in our trials. Now last week we we dug into what it means to count it all joy. We reflected on what God does in our trials. We saw how God encourages us to pray for wisdom in our trials. If you weren't there, I'd just encourage you to listen. But today, he pivots And he addresses a different piece connected to trials, and here's why. Every trial is also an opportunity for temptation. Every trial is also an opportunity for temptation. In your trial, let's just say the trial of a strained marriage, you may be tempted to get angry and lash out. In your trial, let's just stick with the strange, with the strange marriage. <laughs> Maybe it's that too. In your trial, let's just stick with a strained marriage. You may be tempted to seek comfort in the arms of another. Or comfort in the image of another. Trials have a way of bringing opportunity for temptation to sin. Financial difficulty can tempt us to question God's providence in our lives. The death of a loved one can tempt us to question God's love for us. The suffering of the righteous and the, watch out, perceived ease of the wicked, it's never all that easy. But the, but the suffering of the righteous and the perceived ease of the wicked can tempt us to question God's justice. Trials can become an opportunity for temptation, do you see? Every circumstance we meet, therefore, requires a decision. Will we persevere and go on with God? Or will we listen to the voice which suggests an easy way of disloyalty and disobedience? You know what I'm talking about, right? Now, with this in mind, James wants us to face something about ourselves. Right here at this juncture... We could think wrongly about God in a very serious way. What is it? It's some form of us blaming God if we end up going the route of disloyalty and disobedience. One commentator puts it like this. Suppose in any given experience of trial, I give up trying, I listen to the tempting voice, isn't it then his fault? 
Did not he put me here? Was it not by his will that I found myself cornered by temptation which proved too strong? Brothers and sisters, this is the thinking that James never, ever, ever wants us to countenance. Look at verse 13 again. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. Very simple point here. Temptation doesn't come from God. So if you're a note taker, write it down. Temptation doesn't come from God. While God may test us, he never tempts us. While he may test us in order to strengthen our faith, purify our faith, reveal the genuineness of our faith, he never tempts us or induces us to sin. He never does that. And why? Because God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. This is beautiful. Reflect on the beauty of God for just a second. Our God cannot be tempted with evil. Don't you want to serve a God like that? Don't you want to draw close to a God like that who will never, ever, in all eternity desire or even have a whisker of a desire to do what is wrong? Our God is an all-holy God, entirely separate from sin. It's not only that he won't do evil. He can't do evil. It's outside of his character. It's foreign to him. It's inconsistent with his holiness and his purity and thus he doesn't tempt anyone. If temptation to sin is outside of his character, then he's not going to tempt someone with evil because that would be inconsistent with who he is. Now I want to take just a second and, and clear away what may be just a distracting booger of a question for you. We, we did pray just a minute ago, praying to our Father, and we prayed, quote, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That may seem to be inconsistent with James, but it's actually not inconsistent at all. To pray, lead us in, not into temptation, is not to assume that God would actually lead us into temptation. He won't. We know that from, from James. So, so what are we praying when we pray that? Well, good old J.C. Ryle puts it like this. He says, speaking of lead us not into temptation, he says, this teaches us that we are liable at all times to be led astray, to fall. It instructs us to confess our infirmities and beseech God to hold us up and not allow us to run into sin. We ask him who orders all things in heaven and on earth to restrain us from going into that which would injure our souls and never allow us to be tempted above that which we are able to bear. So this is perfectly consistent with James. When we pray this, we're asking God who's pure, who's mighty, who's good to act on our behalf because we aren't those things. We are often impure, we are often spiritually weak, and we often have a tendency to what? To sin. And so this is perfectly consistent 
with James. When we pray this, we are asking God to act on our behalf because we can be easily led astray by our own desires that are often at war within us. And this is, in fact, the point James wants to make clear. Temptation doesn't come from God. It comes from inside us. Verse 14. But each person is tempted when? When he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Have you ever wondered how sin and temptation works? It works like this. You're tempted by your own desire. Now, desire is just a human longing for something, and and it could be neutral, but here the longing is for something fleshly or or illicit or forbidden. So, So Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as strangers and sojourners to abstain from the passions, same word, passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Those are illicit desires. First John says that the world is passing away along with its desires. Same word, illicit desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so the idea here is that you are tempted by your own desire for things you shouldn't desire. So you're at the grocery store. And you know those racy pictures are on the magazines by the checkout line and you start to think, huh, why not take a look? That's desire. That's, that's, that's like bait on a fisherman's hook enticing a fish to bite. Desire inside of us entices us to sin. And desire, if, 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 you, don't, if you don't quench it, if you don't get a hold of it real fast, if you don't resist it, if you don't fight it, it leads you to bite. It, it conceives and it brings forth sin. Now here's an important distinction for those of you who may be given to having a tender conscience. Temptation itself is not sin. The question is, what are you going to do when desire rears its head? Are you going to identify it? Turn from it? Resist it? Fight it? If so, awesome. If not, if you let it linger, then you've let it conceive. You're swimming right to the bait, and it brings forth sin. And the end of sin, if you continue to give yourself to it, is death. And be clear about something. No sin is ever an end to itself. Please be clear about this. No sin is ever an end to itself. Here's what I mean. John Owen talks about this at length in his work on sin and temptation. And here's what he says. He says, the enemy of your soul is never focused on simply getting you to sin. His end game is getting you to sin in a small way leading you to sin in a little bit bigger way, leading you to sin in an even little bit bigger way, on and on until unbeknownst to you, almost imperceptible to you, you are entirely ensnared and covered up by this sin. And so while it might might seem goody-two-shoes to call for zeal 
and not even taking a gander at the cover of the magazine in the grocery store aisle? Brothers and sisters, it's important because the end is not the cover of the magazine in the grocery store aisle. Because it progresses from there and it gets worse and it gets worse. And to give you a different example, so too, I would say to the frustrated couple at each other after a fight, be sure that you ask for forgiveness and reconcile. Every time. Every time. Because what the enemy wants is is one unreconciled matter, another unreconciled matter, another one, another one, leading to a cold and indifferent marriage characterized not by love, but by coolness. And it's just death by a thousand pinpricks. Now, speaking of our enemy, isn't it interesting that James never mentions him here? That is strange. We know that the devil is active. James even mentions the devil later in his book, chapter 4. He says explicitly, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. But he doesn't, he, he, he doesn't give him a word here. And he does it because we can't blame him for our sin either. James doesn't want to give us any room in this passage to blame anybody for our sin but us. God didn't make you do it. The devil didn't make you do it. The only one responsible for your sin is you. You know what James is doing here? He is destroying the line we either say or think, it's not my fault. That is just our go-to line. Uh, You only laugh if it applies to you. It's not your fault, right? It's, it's, It's my kid's fault. It's my friend's fault. It's my boss's fault. It's my mom or dad's fault. James is taking a jackhammer to that phrase and busting it up from the inside out. And he needs to do that because this is what we're inclined to. Like like ever since the fall inclined to, after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, God asked them what happened, and you probably know the story. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. And we follow in their steps. I talked to a person recently, not, not someone here who wouldn't have said that they were blaming God for their marital infidelity but they were I don't know why God would lead me into this situation I don't know what God, why God would bring me to the point of doing this I don't know why God allowed this the thing is as I talked to this person they were taking step after step after step after step toward infidelity even if just in the mind, yet blaming God for it. Even more crazy, blaming God for why he didn't stop it. That's like pushing a pencil off a desk and demanding to know why God didn't cause it to not fall off. James says no. God didn't do this. Your own sinful desires did this. And you let them conceive and bring forth sin. And the end will be death if you don't turn.
And while this is a blatant example, the one that I've just given you, we have a tendency to do the same thing with lesser sins. Listen, sin has a blinding effect on us, which leads us to shift the blame off of ourselves. So brothers and sisters, please, never give place to the thought that any sinful thought or deed you do is anything other than your fault. Your temper, your lust, your road rage, your bitterness, your Facebook rage, your apathy toward God, your greed. Those things aren't the fault of the situation. They aren't the fault of your parents. They aren't the fault of your kids. They aren't the fault of God. The fault for your sin lies within. Okay? Now here's where James goes next. Having made it clear that, that temptation does not come from God, he wants to make it clear What does come from God? So the basic gist of the whole passage is this. God doesn't tempt you, 13 through 15. Instead, God is the father and fountain of all that is good, 16 through 18. So just look at these verses with me again. James 1, 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. So that's a transition verse. It's, it's connected to what preceded and it's linked to what comes next. And he's basically saying, don't be deceived about this. God is not the one who tempts you. Instead, know this. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. We should be a kind of first fruit of his creatures. You know, it's one thing for God to be off the hook for our sin. And that's good, and that's right, and it's true. But James isn't fine with leaving it there. So James doesn't just want us to to not think negatively of God and He doesn't just want us to not ascribe things to him that we ought not. He doesn't just want that. He wants us to think positively about God. In other words, it would be totally wrong for us to leave God in kind of like a neutral spot in our hearts. Like, yeah, okay, fine. God's God's not the one to blame me for to blame for my problems. Okay, yeah, it's 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 not his fault. Okay. Why is that insufficient? Because not only is he not to blame for your sin, he is the father and the fountain of everything that is good. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights. This is a description of God as a giver of every good gift. So what comes to your mind when you think about who God is? What do you think of? If you're like me, you probably think of things like creator, sustainer, savior, judge. James wants you to add another, just as big, gift giver. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, gift giver. 
Now, why does James essentially repeat the same idea twice? He says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It's essentially the same thing. Why does he say it twice? The idea is that he wants to communicate that God is a a superlative giver. God is a ridiculous giver. God is an amazing giver. He is an over-the-top, inexhaustible giver. Think about all that God has given. He has given you life. He has given you parents. He has given you food. He has given you a roof over your heads, a country that is not besieged by foreign armies or armies that are at the gate. He has given you a job. He has given you uh, uh, friends. How, how long? How long should we go? And that's only the temporal, only the physical. Further, those things are things that He gives to those who even deny His existence and curse His name. But he gives more. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. And we haven't even really scratched the surface of his gift-giving generosity. I want you to think about this, believer. For you, for you, believer in Christ, truly all things are a gift from his hand. Everything. And I'm not even exaggerating. Everything, even the trials of your life are a gift. Why? Because they're part of his plan and purpose to save you and to transform you into his image and finally bring you home to himself. Unbelievable. And what's more, he never changes. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James invokes God as creator. He's the father of lights. But more than that, he's the unchanging creator. He is the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Just just think about the sun. That thing that we never see here in Vermont. Think about the sun. You know it looks like the sun moves. Looks like it rises and sets. And so we have shadows based upon where it is in the sky throughout the course of the day. But the reality is, it's not the sun that's moving. It's us that's moving. The earth, the sun is fixed. So too is God. He never changes 
He never shifts. There is no variation or shadow due to change in him. He's not the one who changes. He's always and forever the same from the beginning of time as we know it until the end of time as we know it. On into the ages of ages of eternity, he will never, ever, ever change. He is and he will always, always be generous. Unbelievable, over-the-top giver. That's the God we worship. Not only a God who can't be tempted with evil and who tempts no man, but a God who is unbelievably generous and who will never change. Praise God. Do you see how James wants to have his way with you this morning? He wants to reorient you. He wants to reorient you to temptation. It doesn't come from God. It comes from you. He wants to reorient you to God. He's the unchanging, generous giver. And last of all, he wants to reorient you to his gifts. You know what the best gift he's ever given you as? Or is? What's his best gift? It's the new birth. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature. You know, as wonderful as the gift of life is, a mom and a dad choosing to bring new life into the world, it's plain here that James isn't talking about natural birth, but spiritual birth. New life given by God as our Father. And we see, first of all, the the ground of this new birth. Ask yourself this, why are we born again? Because the Father willed it to be so. Of his own will, he brought us forth. To carry out the analogy between physical birth and spiritual birth, just think about this. The decision to bring forth new life is the decision of the parent not the child. Birth is something that that happens to a child as a result of decisions and actions made by the parent. Well, spiritually and doctrinally, it's the same thing. One commentator says it so well. I'm just going to quote him at length. Spiritually and doctrinally, the new birth belongs with all those passages of Scripture which unveil the secret story lying behind our conversion. From the point of view of God's decision, the Lord Jesus made a stark affirmation. You did not choose me, but I chose you, John fifteen six. Yet many of us remember with great, great clarity when we chose him. But since we are taught that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, John six forty four. And the very faith we exercise when we believe is Jesus when we believe in Jesus is the Father's gift to us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We learn that behind our choice, making it possible, making it real, is the wonder that he first chose us. This is what James refers to when he says, of his own will he brought us forth. The decision was his. Our conscious experience of conversion, of committing our lives to Christ, of receiving him into our hearts, all of this was consequent upon his decision and action and derivative from it. So why do we have new life? Why do we embrace Christ as our Savior? 
because he decided to give us life. And having decided to give us life, we also see the means he used to bring forth our birth. What did he use? The word of truth. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. What is this? It's the gospel. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God uses the word of the gospel, that offer of forgiveness of our sins through repentance and faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He uses that to speak inwardly to our dead souls. He causes us to see our sin and cry out in faith and be saved. And ah, new birth. We are born again. Born from above, born by the Spirit. We were dead, but now we are alive, and it is all the work of God. His choice, His means, His gift of faith. And it could be no other way, because we are dead in our transgressions and sins. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace are you saved. Brothers and sisters, what's God's greatest gift to you? This. It's this. It's the new birth. It's the fact that he, by his sheer mercy and love, set his love upon you and caused you to be born again. You were headed for an eternity of misery. You were headed for hell as the just penalty for your sin. Sin you probably blamed him for at some point. And he, in his generosity, sent his son to die for you, to be put upon the cross, to be beaten and crushed and die and rise so that you can live. Do you see what James wants you to see this morning? He wants you to get above whatever it is that's going on in your life and see things for as they really are. I oftentimes find that my perspective is so jacked up because it's locked in on the here and now and just stuck at tree level. Well, brothers and sisters, I hope through James your eyes have been lifted up above your circumstances, above the immediate and on to the ultimate, on to God. What an incredible God we have. He is entirely pure, entirely holy, absolutely unchanging, unthinkably generous, the giver of every good gift. And he has caused you to be born again. What an incredible God we have. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the dead. For to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, You love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Pray with me. God, thank you that you are not like us. Thank you that you are other. Holy, pure, generous. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.